Please turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 in the Word of God. Last week, we examined Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And he's really stirred up the hornet's nest. He's really made things even worse for himself, in a sense. The religious authorities have already been bent on killing him, but now they realize how critical things are. Jesus is really forcing their hands. And this begins a showdown, this text this morning that we're going to look at, that will escalate, will continue to escalate until Jesus' actual crucifixion. So let's actually stand for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text together. Mark chapter 11, it's going to be verses 27 through 33. They came again to Jerusalem, and as they were as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's the inspired word of God. You may be seated. Let's ask God's help. Our Father, we come to you this morning because we know that you can see us better than we can see ourselves. You know our hearts. You can see every vestige of rebellion, every attitude that is not in conformity to your will. And I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, by the power of your word, would you search us? Would you show us to ourselves as we need to see ourselves? I pray, Father, that any resistance we have to your Son, any rebellion, any refusal to yield over any aspect of our life, our time, our abilities to you, Father, would you convict us of that? I pray by your Spirit's power, would you use me, Lord? Would you use your servant? Please speak, O oh Lord, for we need to hear from you. And I pray if anybody is here that has never yielded to the authority of Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord, that you would work in their heart as well this morning and draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. If we're honest, none of us likes being told what to do. I mean, let's face it, we don't like anybody else telling us what to do with our life. We just don't naturally enjoy people laying down boundaries for us and restricting our liberties. And that's why challenges to authority are so common. We see it in the home with children challenging the authority of their parents. We see it in all these schools, students challenging their teachers' authorities, challenging the principal's authorities. We see it in society, citizens challenging, for different reasons, the authorities of their government. And we see it in the church, too, with members of the congregation challenging the elders or the authority of a pastor. And, of course, we celebrate some rebels as true heroes. People like... William Wallace or Rosa Parks, who we recognize were heroes because they were rebelling against something that was wrong. Tyranny. Oppression. But there's nothing heroic when we are rebelling against God. That is evil. 
Rebellion against God and his anointed, in fact, is the quintessential, we could say, the quintessential expression of foolishness. It is absurd. There is nothing more foolish than for any aspect of creation to shake its puny fist at the creator, to, as it were, challenge his authority. And where does this challenge to God's authority originate? Well, the ultimate authority challenge began with the devil himself. For a non-inspired, but a very creative retelling of this tragedy, you can read Milton's Paradise Lost. Indeed, John Milton did such a good job of conveying Satan's authority challenge to God that many sinners who read his work actually take inspiration from Satan's lines. After being cast out of heaven into hell, as it were, Satan gives these most famous lines from the pen of John Milton. Here, at least, we shall be free. The Almighty has not built here, for his envy will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Truthfully, that's madness. To seek freedom from God in hell. But romantics, such as the poets Blake, Byron, Shelley, they were so infatuated, so attracted to Milton's portrayal of Satan as a courageous and free-spirited rebel that they made him out to be the true hero of Milton's epic poem. And I don't think that's any coincidence. It's no coincidence that Satanist groups, even to this day, will celebrate the very lines, the very statements that are made here in Milton's poem by Satan. They will make them a model of their own because that is the nature of our rebellious hearts. Our sinful nature echoes William Ernest Henley who said, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And the rebel heart says, I don't want anyone telling me what to do, even if it's God. Today's text is very much concerned with the matter of authority. Four times in these brief verses, we see the word authority appear. It's the Greek word exousia, which indicates both a person's right and power to do what he says or what he does. Today's story is really a debate over the nature and extent of Jesus' authority. It's a challenge to Jesus' authority. What we might say is the ultimate authority challenge. And it hits close to home. Because the real question of our text is, does Jesus have authority over your life? In the background of this entire debate is really the question, does Jesus have authority over you? To do with your life as he pleases. In our previous study, we saw Jesus demonstrating his authority over the temple. He just assumes the right to do what he pleases with the house of the Lord. As if it was his own. But we also concluded our study last week by seeing that the Bible says your very life, your body is a temple to God for his use. So the question is, do we respect Jesus' power and his right to do as he pleases with our lives? The big idea undergirding our text is Jesus does command the very authority of God. He has all authority. And that means... He has authority over our lives. These few verses are going to show us then three ramifications of Jesus' divine authority. But before we look at that, let's consider a setting here. Mark says in verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem. Once again, 
They were just here Monday. Now this is Tuesday. And where does Jesus go? Back into the temple. And in reporting the same uh, confrontation we're about to examine between Jesus and the religious authorities, Luke actually sets up his, uh, this same story by telling us that Jesus is here teaching in the temple and preaching the gospel. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 20 that Jesus is in the middle of preaching the gospel to people. He must have been boldly proclaiming what the Bible teaches about our sin, our inability to cover that sin with our own righteousness, and our need to repent and believe on him. And Mark says, and as he was walking in the temple, he's, he's met by his adversaries here. He, as he's walking in the temple, Jesus was a peripatetic teacher. It meant he taught as he walked. And here he is walking through the temple, probably in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch, and he's teaching, and there's a great crowd of hundreds of people, you can imagine, following him, hanging on his every word. And Luke has told us he's teaching and preaching the gospel. And as he's doing that, about the entire temple precinct, Mark says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. They came to him. Jesus is walking in the temple, he's preaching the word of God, and suddenly he's accosted by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. That would be three subgroups that made up what's called the Sanhedrin. These would be members of the Jewish Supreme Court. They were the highest authorities, religiously speaking, in all of Israel. This wouldn't have been all of the 70 or 71 members of the Sanhedrin, but it would have been a especially delegated uh, assembly to come and catch Jesus in his words, to condemn him and to haul him away for trial. And of course, these were the guys, these, this Supreme Court of Israel, these highest authorities in all of Judaism, they would be the ones that were responsible for overseeing the temple. That's interesting because Jesus' actions just yesterday on Monday in the temple were leveled at them. When Jesus said, you have made my father's house a den of thieves, what he was saying is these guys were foremost to blame. When Jesus cleansed the temple, he was ultimately leveling his actions at these guys. And so to this point, I think it's also worth mentioning the Pharisees have been typically mentioned as those coming against Jesus, remember it's always the scribes and the Pharisees coming against Jesus. That was the deal in Galilee. But here we don't see the Pharisees mentioned. And I don't think that's a coincidence, actually. Here in Herod's temple in Jerusalem, it's the Sadducees that have the upper hand. You remember that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were enemies of each other, like two rival parties, like Democrats and Republicans. They're always at each other's throats. And the Sadducees were the religious liberals. They were the theological liberals. They were the ones that had the upper hand in the Sanhedrin at this time. And they also would have seen no problem with turning the temple into a marketplace for commercial business. To them, that was a no-brainer. But the Pharisees most likely loathed that. They despised that. They were at least with Jesus on this one. And so I don't think it's a coincidence. They don't appear here in this certain delegation sent from the Sanhedrin. Of course, the Pharisees also want to do away with Jesus. They're cooperating right now with the Sadducees to catch Jesus, to eliminate him. But at least in this case, they would have to agree that they, they don't like the extortion and commercialism going on in the house of God. 
So what follows now is a showdown between the foremost authorities in all of Judaism and Jesus Christ. Look at verse 28. And they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? That brings us to the first ramification of Jesus' divine authority. Because Jesus has all authority, we see, first of all, Jesus behaves in the most extraordinary way. Jesus behaves in the most extraordinary way. From the uh, Sanhedrin's perspective, Jesus had no legitimate authority, and yet they can't deny. When they look at Jesus, they see a man doing and behaving as no man ever has. And that's why they confront him. You see, the authority they recognized could only be attained by playing according to the rules of their own bureaucracy. Jesus hadn't received an education from their accredited schools. As far as they were concerned, this man wasn't accredited. He has no right to speak. He has no authority to speak as a rabbi. Jesus wasn't approved, at least not openly, by any of the rulers of his time, any of the powerful men in their society. As far as they were concerned, he had no license to do what he was doing. He wasn't licensed by their establishment. And because Jesus didn't have the Sanhedrin's formal stamp of approval in their minds, he had no legitimate authority. But they knew. At the same time, they knew very well the, by what authority Jesus was doing what he was doing. They knew Jesus claimed to speak for God. They knew he claimed to work for God. They knew he claimed to have been sent by God. And they knew Jesus even claimed to be equal with God. Yes, that's why they've made attempts on his life already. That's why they want to do away with him. So why are they asking this question? They know the answer. Well, they are seeking immediate legal grounds in the presence of all these people to put Jesus to death. They want to charge him with blasphemy. You see, blasphemy, as defined in the Jewish Mishnah, wasn't simply claiming to be God, but you could be charged with blasphemy for claiming to have the very authority of God. And so they're looking to set a trap for Jesus, and Jesus knows this. He also knows his time has not yet come, and so he's going to be very shrewd in how he answers his adversaries. I should say this too. Insincere motives aside, the question, by what authority are you doing these things, also is kind of warranted, isn't it? Think about it this way. If somebody walked in this room and started turning over tables and chairs and acting like you own the place, we would say, who are you? What are you doing and why are you doing this? So in a sense, their question is warranted. Why are you doing this, Jesus? What right do you have to do this? Well, Mark would have us to recall that Jesus has been demonstrating his authority in this entire report. I hope that's clear to you. Throughout Mark's entire gospel, we've been seeing the divine authority of Jesus Christ, especially the first eight chapters. You've got to read the Sanhedrin's question to Jesus in verse 28 in the greater context of Mark's gospel. Remember that Jesus' authority was manifest, how it was manifest in his teaching? Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes into a synagogue in Capernaum, and immediately as he enters, he begins to teach, and they were amazed at his teaching, Mark 1, 22. And for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Here, the simple carpenter from Nazareth, no credentials to his name, takes up the scrolls and begins to teach as no man has ever taught. No man ever will. And they were so amazed at his teaching. Mark says they were literally dumbstruck. You could hear a pin drop. Because 
Jesus was teaching as one having exousia authority. It means he wasn't pointing to Moses or Isaiah or any of the prophets as the authority for his words. He was appealing to himself. Just like he would do on the Sermon on the Mount. When he would say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Who, just who are you, Jesus? Well, they were amazed at his authority. Because it was unprecedented authority. And when Jesus had cast out a demon from somebody in that synagogue, they were all amazed, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark 1, 27. Jesus' authority was manifest not only in his teaching, but in his exorcism of demons. In Mark 3, 15, Jesus even gave his disciples authority to cast out demons. He doesn't just have authority, he has authority to give, to confer upon others. The same thing we see in Mark 6, 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus behaved as if he had authority over demons. Actually, Jesus behaved as if he had authority to forgive sins. Mark chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man who has power on earth to forgive sin. And boy, his enemies didn't like that. In fact, any miracle Jesus ever performed was a manifestation of his authority over creation. We see that constantly in Jesus' healing of the sick. That's happening chapter 1, 2, 3. It just keeps continuing through Mark's gospel. And we see Jesus' authority over nature manifest in his commanding of the storm. Remember, he commands the wind and the wave, and they obey him. Mark chapter 4. We see Jesus commanding nature in his creation of bread from nothing. In Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 8, Jesus repeats this miracle where he's creating bread ex nihilo from nothing. Jesus has authority, and more recently we've seen he's demonstrated his authority over nature in his curse of the fig tree. This is no ordinary man we're dealing with here. And there's many additional traits of Jesus' authority. This extraordinary behavior Remember, Jesus has demanded ultimate authority from his disciples. We could look at that in different instances. In Mark chapter 8, we see where he says to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You want to gain life? You better lose it for my sake. Wow. What kind of a man is this? Who is this guy who demands your soul allegiance? Jesus claimed he was sent by the Heavenly Father to live on earth, die, rise again, and he claimed that as the Son of Man, Mark 8.38, he would also return in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. What kind of a claim is this? Who is this guy? Jesus received the praises of men as he's entering into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey we saw on the Sunday of Holy Week. The, his religious enemies, his opponents, are berating him saying do you hear what people are saying how they're praising you they're calling upon you to save them they said tell them to jesus tell them to be quiet and how does jesus reply he says if these would hold their peace the stones would cry out and it's jesus way of saying nature is on my side even the stones creation knows its maker and jesus is assuming the role of creator with all authority. And just the day before, on Monday of Holy Week, Jesus has assumed authority over the temple, the very house and dwelling place of God. He begins, he enters, he begins flipping over tables and driving people out, and he says, my house, my house. That's Jesus. 
unprecedented authority. And it wasn't the first time he challenged the establishment's authority. You remember in Mark, we've seen a string of, co of confrontations between Jesus and the religious establishment. He would lay an axe to their oral traditions. He corrected them on their treatment of sinners and the unclean and the handicapped. He corrected their view of the Sabbath and he redefined it. And Jesus clashed with the religious authorities on so many points, yet he never offers an apology. He never excuses his behavior in any way. He never even seeks anyone's counsel. Nowhere in the Gospels where you see Jesus asking anybody's opinion or, or their counsel, except perhaps in prayer from the Heavenly Father. What does all this prove? Jesus claimed and exercised the very authority of God. That's the only way to account for his extraordinary behavior. And I think we could say that Jesus' authority is really a function of his identity. His authority is a function of his identity. If you know who Jesus is, you won't be surprised at his authority. Because Jesus derives his extraordinary confidence from his extraordinary uh, self-identity, the way he understood himself as the Son of God. He truly saw himself as God's co-equal, and so he acts accordingly. What would you expect? And if you truly understand Jesus' identity this morning, you won't have a problem with him commanding you in your life. Calling the shots and what you do with your body and where you go and how you spend your time. The theologian Abraham Kuyper said, there is not a square inch in the whole of domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. When you really believe that, you're going to accept your time belongs to Jesus Christ. Your talents belong to Jesus Christ. Your ambitions belong to Jesus Christ. All of your assets belong to Jesus Christ. Because if he is who he claims to be, if he is Lord of creation, there is not any inch of your life, any aspect of your being over which he doesn't say, mine. He owns it all. He has a right to it all. But when the, Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? It was really more of a challenge than just a question. They knew what Jesus claimed, but here they're laying down the gauntlet. And how does Jesus respond? Well, that brings us to the second ramification of Jesus' divine authority. We've seen he behaves in the most extraordinary way, but secondly, Jesus returns the challenge. Verses 29 through 32. Because he commands the very authority of God, of course, he returns the challenge. Verse 29. And Jesus said, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. How does Jesus return the challenge? Well, three ways. First of all, he dictates the terms of the challenge. The Sanhedrin demand Jesus to give them an answer for himself. They demand a warrant for his extraordinary behavior. They want credentials, and they knew Jesus' answer. There was nothing sincere in what they were seeking. That they didn't have some kind of misunderstanding here. They weren't seeking the truth. They want to condemn Christ, we've already said. They knew the source of his authority, and they want Jesus to come out and say it so they can grab him and haul him away for a public trial. While they knew Jesus' answer to this question, they hadn't reckoned on the fact that Jesus is the one, as the king of kings, who always sets the terms. The, the terms and the conditions for any engagement. And I think this is instructive for us here, beloved. Have you ever been upset with God Ever been disgruntled with God? Ever felt that maybe he was 
not fair with you? Maybe you felt that he was interfering with your personal happiness or your well-being. I've been there. I can confess that, be the first to say that. And when that time comes, when you find yourself frustrated with Jesus because you don't like what he's doing in your life, you don't like how he's handling what you see as your life, you begin to ask questions. You begin to perhaps make demands upon him without even knowing it, forgetting for a moment who it is you're really talking to. Whether stated or unstated, our attitude can so suddenly be, we can so suddenly embrace an attitude that God somehow owes us an explanation for what's happening in our life. God somehow owes me perhaps even an apology for what he's doing in my life. And that's how we challenge him. And in such times, we need to remember that Jesus commands all authority over our lives. He has both the power and the right to do as he pleases with us. Everything we have belongs to him. And anyone who challenges him, he returns the challenge. I think of Job in the Old Testament. When Job challenges God, God returns the challenge. And how does that all end? Who wins the challenge? Well, we know the program can't beat the programmer, can it? The, the, the clay can't beat the potter. No aspect of creation can one-up the creator. My point is that Jesus will dictate the terms for any engagement. We can't meet him on our own terms. We must meet him on his terms. That's a king. That's what a king is. That's what we see in our text. They say, tell us. Jesus says, you tell me. Then I'll tell you. That's how it's going to be. And that's exactly how a king behaves. We don't give him our demands. He gives us his demands. Now notice in Jesus' counter-challenge, he not only dictates the terms, but secondly, he confronts them with the source of his authority. That's verse 30. Jesus said, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now Jesus' counter-challenge here is actually a very clever way of confronting his adversaries with the source of his authority. How so? Well, in a couple ways. When Jesus is inquiring about John's baptism, he's doing so because, first of all, John himself pointed to Jesus Christ as the one sent from God, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, John declared, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. That's Jesus Christ. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says, don't be impressed with me. Be impressed with the Son of God. Be impressed with Jesus the Christ. So Jesus, by, that's the reason he's pointing to John's baptism. They validate John. They're validating Jesus because John validated Jesus. But also, and I think even more importantly, it was at the baptism of John that Jesus received his first and greatest approval from God the Father, even directly. Do you remember that? The very first approval of Jesus' divine authority comes directly from heaven at the baptism of John. We've seen that in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Here the Father 
gives audible approval of his beloved son. And there could be no doubt then, if John's ministry was authentically from God, then all the more was Jesus. If John was to be regarded as God's prophet, then even more so was Jesus to be regarded as God's prophet and son. So it's a very clever way here that Jesus is forcing his challengers to reckon with the source of his authority by reckoning with the authenticity of John's baptism. Look how the Sanhedrin react here in verse 31. They began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. As crafty as these men are, Jesus challenges them and, and quickly dictates the terms, confronts them with the source of his authority, and thirdly, he puts them in a real dilemma. He puts them, we might say, between a rock and a hard place. That's what we see in verses 31 and 32. Apparently, this band of very intelligent authorities were not ready for Jesus' question. They have to excuse themselves for a moment, and they begin reasoning among themselves. That indicates they needed a moment to convene here, almost like a team huddle. Hold on, Jesus, we'll get back to you just a moment. I think that's just like classic politics at work, isn't it? What are they really interested in? Give us a moment. We need to think about how we want to answer this. And the reason for that is they're not truly interested in, in telling Jesus what they really think. They're not interested in expressing their honest opinion or what they would perceive as the truth. They are seeking political expediency. They want to craft an answer or statement that would be very politically correct. And so you can see them all huddled together here saying, if we say John's baptism was from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him then? You see, they knew that John the baptizer had claimed Jesus was the son of God. He, he, he was to be the forerunner to Messiah and appointed people to Jesus as that one mired himself. They knew John says, he must increase, I must decrease. They knew John says, I'm not worthy to touch his sandals. Boy, they can't affirm John, can they? They knew that when John baptized Jesus, some even claimed a voice came out of heaven which approved Jesus Christ. While they discredited all that for themselves, they knew they could not give approval to John or his ministry. They knew that would be inviting Jesus to say his authority came from where John said it came from, namely God. But verse 32, here's the other wall they're up against. But shall we say the baptism of John was from men? They were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Luke actually tells us in Luke 20, verse 6, if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. Whatever the public may have thought about John the Baptist during his lifetime, it is clear to us that by this time, after John's martyrdom by Herod, the people revered John most highly. It, apparently, John's heroic stand against Herod and his consequent martyrdom had so moved the Jewish public that John was highly revered. He was a saint in their minds. He was a martyr. He was a man's man. He was, even more than that, a man from God, a prophet. And if you're ever in Mecca, I wouldn't advise you to go around 
trying to discredit publicly the ministry of the Saudis' prophet there. I don't think that would turn out so well for you. I think you would soon experience what is called the madness of the crowds. And that is a similar dynamic here. These religious authorities know that all these hundreds of people hanging on Jesus' every word will suddenly, instantly turn on them should they publicly discredit John the Baptist. They can't touch him. That was one of God's anointed. And so they're between a rock and a hard place. They can approve, on the one hand, the one who approved Jesus' divine ministry. No, that's not an option. Or they can discredit him and lose the people's approval. Mm, We don't like that one either, they said. So here's what they came up with. They said, we do not know. They were able somehow to push past their pride and admit their own ignorance. When you challenge the one who has all authority, we better be prepared for Jesus in a similar way to turn the tables on us, to, as it were, put us in a checkmate. You know God's able to do that? We can resist him, we can say no to Jesus Christ, but it's God who ultimately knows how to checkmate us, to bring us exactly where he wants us to be. And in the end, he will always win the challenge. That's what's happening here. And this is an opportunity for these rebels to embrace the truth about Jesus and to acknowledge what Jesus' forerunner acknowledged about him. But rather, what do we see? Rather than acknowledging the truth about Jesus Christ, they're so hardened in their rebellion, they refuse to even consider that. They even refuse to consider what John said about Jesus, and they opt rather for what they see as political expediency. And they answered him, verse 33, we do not know. That was a lie. They knew very well that John was a prophet, though they had decided in their hearts he was not a prophet they would follow. And so they decided to go the political route, giving non-answer. I think we see a lot of that in our time. Politicians, even now, unfortunately, many popular church leaders opting to say rather what will be well-received by the public rather than what the Bible clearly teaches. That's not being truthful. Because Jesus has all authority, we've seen already, he behaves then in the most extraordinary way. Secondly, he returns the challenge. It's what we would expect from one who has all authority. But a third ramification of Jesus' divine authority from our text is that Jesus stands his ground and he won't be moved. That's verse 33. Jesus stands his ground, he won't be moved. They said, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you. Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because Jesus has all authority, he can stand his ground and he won't be moved. And there's two points I want to make here briefly. First, Jesus wins the authority challenge. That's plain. He wins by refusing to give his opponents the answer they demand from him. And he won't be manipulated into giving you or myself what we demand from him. He will stick to his terms. We can't manipulate him. And Jesus isn't going to back down. He's God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8, because he is God. Very God of very God. Holy, righteous, perfect. He won't be moved. So he wins the challenge. But secondly, we see Jesus walks away. This is really sad. He walks away spelling judgment for these rebels who challenge his authority. When they fail to meet Jesus' counter challenge, Jesus basically says to them, I'm done with you. I have nothing more to say to you. And he walks away. 
And that's a sobering judgment. True to his own teaching, though, Jesus is not going to cast pearls before swine. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus isn't going to try to continue to reason and plead with these who have rejected him. Not for lack of evidence, but for a lack of submission to his authority. And following Jesus' example here, I think will spare you a lot of wasted time and heartache. Just understand, there's going to be people in your life that don't want to hear the truth. And you know what? You can't force feed the gospel down their throat. No amount of cramming the gospel down their throat is going to do any good. And so Jesus walks away. We've seen in our text, Jesus has all authority. It's the very authority of God. That means he has authority over your life this morning. But one reason why we really need a message like this, why is that? Is because our race has a very bad problem with authority. We got a major authority problem. And in our world, rebelling against God's authority isn't just happening. I mean, it's fashionable. It's the trend where we, we see our culture making it allegedly popular to define marriage and the family the way we want. Who cares what God wants? Who cares what God has ordained? Who cares what our creator's design is revealed to be? It's what we want. It's how we define ourselves. We can define our own gender and roles. We are rebels challenging God's authority. And we see this in, in how our race goes about saying how we want to manage our bodies and our behavior, our time, our life. And that's no surprise. Everything we view as sinners, we tend to view with respect to our own selfish hearts. My life, my family, my children, my time, my church. Even in a selfish, simple way, my God. Everything revolves around us. That is the heart of rebellion. But this morning, we must yield to the supremacy of Christ. And the basic question from our text that comes jumping off the page to us is, do you believe Jesus has authority over your life? And if so, how are you obeying his authority? How have you allowed Jesus to rule over your life? How is his will, as revealed in his word, dictating your choices, your behavior, even your very thought life? What if Jesus came into your life as he came to the temple and he says, these things have to go? How would we respond? Would we say, no, Lord? We can't, if he's truly Lord. Or would we raise hell like the religious authorities did? Resisting his authority, challenging his authority. Jesus didn't come to earth here to be a resource to these people. To be a resource to us. To be an inspiration. He didn't come to this earth to be a God set up in your pantheon. He came to this earth for you. To own you. To rule you. To receive you to himself. That in ruling you, he might give you himself. And with himself, all the joys of eternal life. Does Jesus call the shots in your life? Does he have the liberty and license to do as he pleases? If you've never submitted your life entirely to Christ and just taking your hands off said, my life belongs to King Jesus, you're still a rebel at large. And Jesus is calling you to come and repent and pledge everything to him in faith. And he will receive you and he will forgive you and make you one of his own. Finally, I think it's worth 
drawing inspiration from the boldness of Christ in this text. What a valid application for a people, a church that lives in a society where allegiance to God and his authority is increasingly unpopular. You know, if you're going to decide, I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ, I, I will serve King Jesus, do you know that's going to meet with challenges? You're going to meet with persecution. And I think we just need to remember from the example of Christ that we don't need the approval of men this morning. We don't need the approval of men as convenient as that is. We only truthfully need the approval of our God. Jesus understood that. And that's why he's able to stand boldly and unwaveringly before the most powerful men of his society and speak the truth to them. And like Jesus, we don't need the license or credentials of the godless, however prestigious. We only need the commission and unction of our God. We need his message and we need his power, his purity. We desire peace. We desire freedom to continue preaching God's word as we are currently able to do. But I'm telling you, there's coming a time when our government will say it is what you are teaching out of the word of God is deemed psychologically harmful to sinners. You are no longer allowed to teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ what the revelation of God says. What will you do? To whom does your allegiance belong? Now is the time to decide. I pray that if that day or when that day comes, we are all declared to be God's outlaws. That our allegiance would be clear to the one who has all authority. May the Lord give us boldness to do what is right, to remain faithful to Christ's authority no matter what the wicked may say.